Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Menschwarmers, uh, our first episode of the 2020s. Now that the uh, conventional calendar has had its new year. Caught the up the with, secondary calendar. Yeah, the secondary calendar. A second new year for us. We hope, uh, we hope in this time between Jewish New Year and Chinese New Year, you've had a successful turning of the calendars. Yeah. Glad to be back with you, Gabe. Uh, we were just Likewise, watching Jamie. a quasi-sport together, uh, the Jeopardy Greatest of All Time tournament. I think it's a, a uh, competition. I think it counts. Yeah. We won't spoil it in case there's anyone who's uh, got it on the PVR. But I will say that the Jewish... Uh, Jeopardy champion Buzzy Cohen does not win. No. Nor three... did he participate in the tournament. Yeah, the three contestants were all non-Jews, which I feel like is a surprise. You would think one of the people who is the greatest of all time in contention, or at least, I'd... might be Jewish. I feel like trivia is a real Jewish sport. Yes, I think so too. At least bar trivia is yeah. a real Jewish sport. Or it's a bochon. What is the Talmud and the Mishnah? <laughs> <laughs> if not just a collection of arcane facts yeah. and uh, reasoning and, and all that. Did your Jewish summer camp have a trivia competition? Uh, we did. We had, a, we had a Camp Jeopardy tournament. We did as well. It's, yeah. We have a, a, a we called it Bochon, which is Hebrew for trivia. Sure. Or Yiddish or something. But it's actually interesting. In about two weeks, my camp is having an alumni reunion Bochon. Wow, that's yeah. great. I would love if uh, if Walden did that. I was the four time winner of uh, Camp Walden Staff Jeopardy. Yes, uh, I won. I did win a a Bochon question by once when I got a. Uh, I people thought at camp I was a legend when I buzzed in before the question had asked, mm. based purely on the category and guessed. Well, that's good. And I got it right. Good for you. Yeah. The answer uh, is Adrian Brody. I still remember that. Wow. So was it all Jewish-related trivia? No, it was just anything. Just happened to be Adrian Brody. Just happened to be yeah. Adrian Brody. Oh, he's Jewish. So maybe it yeah, was. Yeah. I don't know. I was 12. I think he's Jewish. He, I, he, well, he certainly played one in The Pianist. Yeah. I think he's Jewish. Um, well, New Year. Uh, I guess we have new... to find out if The Pianist was circumcised. Mm, good one. New Year, new uh, new Dafyo Mi cycle. Has that started yet? Uh, I think new... so. Uh, I'll catch it when it starts again in seven years. Um, <laughs> some other uh, news news to talk about, things that have gone on since we were last on a mo- uh, last month. Uh, unfortunately, David Stern has uh, has died. Uh, he died a few weeks ago. The longtime commissioner of the NBA, he was commissioner uh, from the mid-'80s until the late-2000s, uh, saw the NBA through tremendous change. Um, you know, it's something we want to talk about. We, we haven't had a chance to plan it out yet in terms of a, a more full – uh, retrospective episode, but I think that's something that we're going to have in the future. Yes, like many Jewish people, his emotional and spiritual and influential presence extends far beyond his physical presence. Uh, and even though he was a small man, he left a big legacy. Yeah, that's right. We would like to discuss it uh, in depth, and, and we're not sure we can put that together right now. We want to line up some guests for you and some discussions. Yeah, so. maybe in line with a sort of unveiling. You know, a few months later, we'll have the, the <laughs> retrospective. Not not to make light of it. Um, in in the sports in the sports world, I mean, it's NFL playoff time. Uh, the you know some of the most uh, most notable Jews in the NFL were eliminated early. The New England Patriots, obviously Bob Kraft, the owners Jewish, uh, Julian Edelman and Nate Ebner, uh, former uh, Super Bowl well. MVP. Julian, Julian Edelman. Edelman, notable Jews, and uh, Julian Edelman made the news otherwise because he was arrested for vandalism for jumping on the hood of a Mercedes. That doesn't seem very Jewish, unless his like dad was driving the Mercedes. Oh, good point. Yeah, that's true. Uh, apparently, he was out partying with Paul Pierce and uh, Dammy Amendola. <laughs> <laughs> he got arrested for vandalism, so I, I assume he'll get uh, you know time served, community service kind of thing. Yeah, uh, Mitchell Schwartz of the Kansas City Chiefs is, I, I think, our last remaining Jewish player. Uh, as we tape this going into the conference championships. So wish him kol kavod. And uh, if, you, if, you, if you want to have a Jewish sporting rooting interest here, you can root for the Kansas City Chiefs, I think. Yeah. Uh, 
other than the racist chant and the team name. Yeah, aside from that. Yeah, aside from that. Uh, I, I assume there's a Jewish owner left in... Oh, that's a good question, them. actually. Uh, Green Bay is the city of Green Bay, so that's yes, not. I assume there oh, was a single Jew there. Yeah. Uh, San Francisco is the York the family. The York family? Are they Jewish? Uh, I can't remember. We, I mean, we'll have to go back to yeah. our own discussion. Kansas City isn't. Episode. Kansas City's the Hunts, Lamar Hunts' uh, yeah. descendants. They're not Jewish. And, uh, you know, I don't know who owns the Tennessee Titans. Uh, that, that one escapes me at the moment. So, John Edward York, yep. graduate Jed. of the University of Notre Dame. Okay. Probably Stop you not there. Jewish. Uh, Tennessee Titans owner, I'm not sure. I mean, I think the Titans are really the team that the, the media has the least interest in winning. Like, that's yep. going to be the smallest draw. As much as they've been sort of taking over. You know, they beat New England and they beat Baltimore. It's pretty impressive. Um, there is one, you know, Mike Jacobs all-star, uh, a non-Jew with a Jewish name, and, and Richard Sherman, obviously, of the San Francisco 49ers, previously the Seahawks. You know, Richard Richie Sherman sounds like sounds like someone sure. uh, Richie, I, I could have gone to Hebrew school with. Camp with Richard Richie Sherman. Yeah, exactly. And he was always the kid who, like the regular Richard Sherman, was just good at everything. You know, top of his class in in public school, went to Stanford, got two degrees. Yeah, academic you know, all American. Exactly. Sounds pretty Jewish. Outspoken. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's a political left wing. Yeah, very right. Jewish. Uh, so I would say uh, Mitchell Schwartz or, or Richard Sherman. Those are your those are your Jewish picks for the. <laughs> The remainder of the NFL season. That's right. I think I think for most sports, we could get a, a real Jew and a Mike Jacobs all-star. Yeah. Uh, moving on, it is the uh, the NHL all-star game is coming up. That's right. It's in uh, two weeks. Uh, Where is it this year? It's, uh, I believe, in St. Louis. Oh, okay. Which That's is nice, fitting they won for the, uh, winning cup the, last the cup. Year. Exactly. Um, but, you know, a uh, good coincidence. Uh, but uh, big exciting news from the Jewish world of the NHL. For the oh, first yeah. time since, as far as we can tell... 2003, so 17 years ago, there was a Jewish player in the NHL All-Star Game. Oh, great. Who's that? Uh, it is Quinn Hughes. Okay. The charismatic, exciting, excellent, and overshadowing his first overall pick brother, Jack, uh, Vancouver Canuck, uh, who uh, we believe is the third Jewish NHL All-Star of all time. Uh, who are Matthew Schneider and Buddy Nystrom. Um, Bobby Nystrom, I'm being uh, corrected by my uh, producer here. Bobby Nystrom, who is Swedish. Oh, I'm surprised. Swedish yeah. Nystrom. There's mm. a couple of Swedish Jews in the NHL. Andre Burakovsky right. uh, plays for the Capitals. Yeah, He's a Swedish Jew. Um, but he is a, you know, a Russian. His parents were Russian Jews. Gave birth to him in Sweden. But Quinn Hughes, we wish him the best of luck. It's great to have a Jewish guy in the All-Star game again. Yeah. Been a very long time. It's funny that he's named Quinn Hughes, which is like if you had me pick all the Jews in the NHL. It's the opposite was, of a Mike Jacobs All Star. Yeah, exactly. We, should we have Quinn Hughes All Stars? Quinn now? Hughes All Stars is pretty good. It's like it's like someone's got to be like, really, that guy's Jewish <laughs> exactly. with that name and with that name. He, he's not exactly the most uh, Ashkenazi looking guy, I would say. No, right? No, yeah. but his his you know mother's last name is Weinrib, mm-hmm. uh, and she was a professional hockey player. Right. Um, so, uh, and a, a worked for the Maple Leafs for a long time. Well, good for him. Yeah. Is he, um, do you know, do, do you get to do the skills competitions and stuff like that if you're an all-star? No, or I think they... you are selected. Okay. But I, he will be in the rookie challenge for sure. Uh, is he uh, a first, well second year player? He's the first year. He's a rookie. Sorry. He, no, his brother, Jack, is the They is both the are. He oh, was, okay. So, Quinn was drafted last year. I see. Played an extra year in the minors. Okay. And then uh, they both debuted this year. Okay. But Quinn is leading Vancouver. He's he's I think leading the league in power play points by a defenseman as well, um, and he's doing great. At least leading all the Jews in the league in power play points by a defenseman. Right. Um, one other piece of uh, of sort of Canadian Jewish uh, news is that Florence Richler died. She was the widow of Mordecai Richler, uh, the famed Canadian novelist and sports writer. Yeah. Uh, and she was you know involved in his writing as well. 
which is a good segue for something we wanted to talk about, which was uh, a certain Canadian sports legend uh, who has been heavily featured on our televisions recently. A man uh, who, who was once described as uh, couldn't spell cat if you gave him the C and the T. Yes. A man who Mordecai Richler once referred to as the most boring man he'd ever met. Uh, I'm talking about the great one here. And Getty Lee? No. Unfortunately not. Uh, although RIP to Neil Pert. Uh, Rush rules. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm talking about the great one, Wayne Gretzky. And I'm talking specifically about a commercial I've been I've been forced to watch a lot recently. Uh, you know, I try and avoid commercials if I can, watching TV online or whatever. But, uh, you know, watching the NFL uh, playoffs and uh, college football playoffs and all Jeopardy. that. Yeah, Jeopardy. There's just been a lot of commercials I've witnessed. And one that keeps be- keeps being played is this commercial uh, that Wayne Gretzky made for Tim Hortons. Uh, for our non-Canadian or non-Western uh, New York listeners... <laughs> Tim Hortons is a uh, supposedly Canadian donut and coffee chain. It is. Actually owned by a Brazilian conglomerate. Yes, although um, it was founded by the hockey player Tim Horton himself and his wife, who were really bilked out of a fortune. It's an interesting story, but we can get onto that later. Right. So this commercial concerns that Tim Horton, the original Tim Horton, who was a hockey player for uh, the Leafs and, and for the some, Buffalo Sabres. And the Buffalo Sabres, uh, who died tragically in a drunk driving uh, Police accident. Police yeah, in which he was the drunk driver and died. Uh, yeah. No judgment on him. That, that's not really the point here. The commercial features uh, Wayne Gretzky talking about when he was uh, a young Six, kid. I believe. No, seven. He, he says when he seven. was four or five, but the dates don't work out. That in 1968, <laughs> the basic story of the commercial is this. In 1968, Tim Horton was signing autographs at his restaurant in Brantford. Young Wayne went in and forgot to bring anything to have signed by Mr. Horton. And so uh, Tim signed a napkin for him. He said, it wrote, best wishes, Wayne, Tim Horton. And according to the commercial, the Gretzky family has been holding on to this napkin for more than 50 years. And they present the napkin at the end of the commercial. And, T- and Wayne talks about how meeting Tim Horton inspired him to believe that he could be a professional hockey player. So... I've got some real problems with this commercial, and you're going to hear him. You're going to hear him, listeners. I know what you're saying. I've heard him on the podcast. This guy doesn't know hockey. It's true. I don't know hockey, but I know what I see, and I can tell you what I see with my own eyes, and I don't believe this commercial for a second for a number of reasons. First of all, let's start with the beginning. He says he was four or five. The commercial is supposed to have taken place in 1968. He would have been seven or eight at the time of the commercial, at least six or seven. He wouldn't have been four or five. So that's the first one. There also may not have been a Tim Hortons in Branford in 1968 at the time. There's some evidence. Yeah, there may or may not have been. Uh, So I don't know that that happened or not, uh, but whatever. Assuming the narrative of the commercial, this kid who – Wayne says that he – that Tim Horton was one of his idols. This is nonsense. This is not something we've ever heard before. Wayne Gretzky has been very, very candid about Gordy Howe being his idol growing up. Uh Uh, Currently at the Hockey Hall of Fame, there's an exhibit comparing the two. Yeah. It's very good. I would recommend it to our listeners in Toronto. He chose the number 99 because it was Gordy Howe's number twice. Uh, Gordy Howe wore nine famously, and and, and Gretzky wore nine nine. So I I, I tried to do some research on Google whether there's any connection between Tim Horton's Tim Horton, the player, and Wayne Gretzky prior to this commercial running, and there is none. There is no mention in any article or any book or anything written about Gretzky over the last 35 years since he's been, you know, one of the best hockey players in the world, uh, where he references Tim Horton as being an inspiration or anything like that. So that that's the first part. Yeah. And that's that's reasonable enough. You could say, well, okay, that's a bit of a stretch, but fine. Um, the only uh, – this is an interesting sidebar. The only uh, connection between Gretzky and Tim Hortons I found – 
predating this commercial is that if you go to Tim Hortons and order a Gretzky, what you're ordering is a nine cream, nine sugar <laughs> coffee. Like a double double, but you know, with nine, nine of, of each. Yeah. Hey, will they serve you one? Like I think if you explain to them, like, I want nine creams, nine sugars, they'll be like, right. all right, but you won't get much coffee. Could you walk into any any Tim Hortons in the country and order a Gretzky? I would think if it if it's found you know, it's like one of those secret Just menu the one items. In Brantford. It's like <laughs> the getting, only one you it's can like getting your coffee animal style, you know? It's right. one of those secret menu hacks that, that only only some people know. So I actually have a story related to this. I once ran into t- into Wayne Gretzky at a coffee shop. Yeah. In Toronto, yeah. about three years ago, Connor McDavid was in town. I assume Gretzky was in town to be on Hockey Night in Canada. To sure. Talk about the heir apparent. Uh, it was a pilot. Huh. It was not a Tim Hortons. So there you so go. Game Choice's third gen uh, fancy espresso yeah. uh, coffee shop. He did order an extra large cappuccino and sat and read the newspaper by himself. Nobody bugged him. Yeah. Um, so I have heard uh, on some authority from people in the advertising world that Tim Hort- that sorry that Gretzky will show up and do Tim Hortons is a little stiff. Yeah. <laughs> Gretzky's a little stiff too. Yeah. But Gretzky will show up and he'll give you three takes and that's it. Even if he screws one up on his own accord, like doing a commercial, it's just like, no, that's it. You have right. him for 20 minutes or whatever you have him for and that's it. So that was my first part Interesting. of the issue with the commercial. My next problem is this. The end of the commercial is Wayne uh, meeting with his dad, Walter, uh, his sort of famous hockey dad, and they pull out what is supposed to be the original napkin that they say was saved all these years despite there being a flood and uh, some of the memorabilia getting destroyed. This is in a scrapbook somewhere. Mm-hmm. And they show the napkin. And uh, we'll, show it, we'll show it to you guys. We'll, we'll put it in the show, show page somewhere on Twitter. Uh, this does not look like a napkin that existed 50 years ago. Now, look, I'm not an expert on paper products or anything like that. But this is a recycled uh, paper napkin. Like the brown napkin that you see at Tim Hortons or McDonald's these days. Anywhere you go. It is not the kind of napkin that would have existed 50 plus years ago, which I assume would only have been like the white diner style napkin out of the silver, out of the metal dispenser. That's right. the kind of napkin that existed. And I've looked at archival photos of Tim Hortons. And as far as I can tell, the only <laughs> napkin dispensers that existed in Tim Hortons deep in this man prior to the 1970s is those diner style white napkin dispensers. Right. So I don't understand how it could have been that this, this modern style napkin is what Tim Horton allegedly signed for Wayne. So I thought about this. It is possible the napkin could have browned, yellowed, aged over time. Like it's you possible. see in a, in a high school, you know, history project. It's possible. That said. Yeah. I Googled the average life of a paper napkin. Yeah. It's approximately five years. Yeah. Either we're dealing with some sort of magic napkin. Yeah. Only present in the early Tim Hortons, the ones that Tim Horton would actually be at, let alone the pen stroke. Exactly. So unless the uh, Gretzky family, knowing that uh, this opportunity to have Tim Horton sign a napkin... Uh, in 1968 was so important to the future narrative of uh, their son, who is going to be a professional hockey player, and, you know, encased it in some acid-free paper with a plastic <laughs> cover or under glass somewhere. In case that very same coffee chain named after the man yeah. would grow to more than 500 locations 50 years later. Yeah. So all of that is a bit too far-fetched for me to believe. Now, I think what's going to come out if people are interested in actually fact-checking this. And look, I know it's an advertisement. I know it's not that important. But Tim's is branding this as Tim's True Stories. Like, that's the whole branding campaign. Are there other stories? Yeah, there's one about, like, Shawn Mendes busking, I think. And, like, you know, like, that one's realistic. Like, okay, he drank Tim Horton's coffee. Like, yeah, that's probably realistic. He was on the street drinking it. But look, I'm saying, if someone wants to fact-check this, fact-check this. 
I get the credit. You know, it's it's not that important at the end of the day. Uh, but I do think it is a lie. I, I do think that there's a lot of this that's been fabricated. It's all just way too pat. And, you know, there's something that I find very... I find a little bit offensive the way Tim Horton sort of brands itself as it's sort of, you know, based on its sort of national uh, emblem, you know, the the center point it has in our, in our national identity. When it makes... Just mediocre coffee and mediocre <laughs> if the everything was better, else. You wouldn't care. You'd be fine with the commercial. I mean that. Yeah, exactly. Not. I mean, not to mention the fact that it's it is truly owned by a Brazilian conglomerate and yeah. Burger King at this point. Like it is not really some some you know hard scrabble Canadian story. Do you think their coffee has gotten a little beefier after uh, the Burger King acquisition? <laughs> I think they, they stir it and they don't have a coffee stir. It's just a chicken fry. It's now. a chicken fry, exactly. Yeah. Well, I want to bring my attention to bring the listeners and Jamie in front of me's attention to two parts of that aforementioned Mordecai Richler profile of Wayne Gretzky. He wrote it for the New York Times, 1986. It said two things about Wayne Gretzky and sort of his his slice of life uh, from Canada. The first one he said is that he's read the history of Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. And I'm, this has gone pre 1986, and certainly in the the. 33 years since then. Yeah, 1986. Yeah. 33 years since then. So that Wayne has never said a word that wasn't meant to please somebody. Right. That it's all so prepared and all so researched that he knows exactly who he's talking to and what his audience is. And he, he knows his bread and butter is Canadians who like Tim Hortons, like mediocre wine, yep. and uh, shirts that you don't need to tuck in. Yep. That seems to be what Wayne Gretzky stands for. There's a second quotation. Man, I drove by Wayne Gretzky's uh, winery one time a couple years ago in the middle of winter, and it was like lines out the door. Really? People are just eating that stuff up. Like, it's it's bad. It's quite bad. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had... Eating the grapes straight off the vine. Is it 9.9% well, alcohol? If not, that's a missed <laughs> that's opportunity. Funny. It is a missed opportunity. It's also like, I think it, it's just branding. I mean, it's all yeah. been branding. Anyways, so, you know, he this guy's the king of, the king of branding and... and Absolutely. Know, He's been playing that way forever. Name. Yeah. Similarly, Richler said, which I think is an apt quotation for you, Jamie, and one we maybe can close the book on this debate, this very short debate. Yes, the commercial is a lie. Okay. Uh, that Wayne Gretzky, if the man has no flaws, his countrymen will invent some. Hey, I just did. Yeah, you just did. Look, That's it. Yeah. Well, it's good that you agree it's a, it's a lie. You know, people have described this podcast as, uh, as the two of us vociferously agreeing with each other. So, <laughs> like, good, good that we stay on brand with of, that. A lot of violent agreement on the next A lot of violent us. agreement. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice if we could take some opposite positions on things. I think we, we tend to care about the same, similar... As similar, Jews, similar I, th- I as feel Jews. we have the responsibility to have a set set group of opinions. Yeah. Uh, so that's my my take. I mean, you know, this is good. This podcast has gone after Don Cherry and Wayne Gretzky now. Yeah, uh, that's, we're we're breaking down Canadian institutions one at a time. Yeah, Mario Lemieux, we're coming for you. Exactly. Let's talk about uh, Mackenzie King and his uh, policy at the SS St. Louis. Who are the other uh, people uh, on the top ten of the greatest, the CBC's greatest Canadian poll? Maybe we'll we'll have to start picking them off yeah, one by one. Tommy Douglas. Oh, true. Uh, Pierre Trudeau. I got some. T- I got some Pierre Trudeau takes. <laughs> I don't think I don't think you people are, are ready for them yet. Um, what do you mean, you people? Yeah, exactly. Our, lis- our listeners. Our listeners. Our listeners, right. the Jews. Uh, Gabe, I've done an interview with uh, Nathan Abrams. I'm so excited to hear it. Nate Abrams. Yeah. He is a... Not a, not a Mike Jacobs all-star. Not that a Mike... That, pretty that one's pretty on the nose. Or a Quinn Hughes all-star. Not a Quinn Hughes all-star. No, not a Quinn Hughes all-star. Abrams, I feel like, is one of the more Jewish last names one can have. Maybe Cohen, but... Cohen. Anything Abram, Abrahams, you know. You know, I grew up with a guy named David Ben Israel. Yeah, that's, that's that's pretty Jewish. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 very yeah yeah. But uh, Nathan was kind enough to join us. He is a uh, professor at uh, 
the University of Bangor in uh, Wales, a uh, country you've been to. Bangor? I yeah. hardly know Or. No. <laughs> Had to go there. <laughs> no, Or is an Israeli name. Yeah. Bangor? I hardly know Or. That's not bad. Ben, ben, ben Gore. Ben Gore and Ben Gorion. Not, not too far Ooh, apart. Yeah, I had a friend named David Ben Gorion. Yeah. But uh, Nathan joined us and talked a little <laughs> bit about the Jewish side of cricket, uh, a sport that you know a little better than I. But yep. uh, he was happy to elucidate us and, and why he thinks cricket is, a, is an ideal sport for Jews and its sort of role in, uh, in the history of English Jewry and, and uh, colonialism and the English empire around the world. I wasn't at this interview. Um, I had closed on a house that day. Ah, congratulations! Thank you very much. And you were sure. moving. You were I'm moving done. in, I guess. On the- I, I was hanging mezuzahs. I ah, spent the nice. entire day hanging a mezuzah on every single door frame in the house. Ah, Kanehora. Well, exactly. that's a good reason. That's a good reason to miss it, if any. And unfortunately, uh, but yeah. I'm excited to hear about it. I read a very uh, Jewish story. I think a Jewish athlete story of cricket the other day to bring us into this, and that there was a time in the early days of cricket. There's so cricket is known. Like baseball, you, somebody throws a ball on, you hit it. But in cricket, uh, there's called the leg side and the offside. You either hit it, you pull the ball, you hit it towards your leg, or you hit it away from you. Okay. The offside. In the early days of cricket, it was considered ungentlemanly to hit the ball on your leg side. It was considered really? ungentlemanly to pull the ball <laughs> wow. because you'd make everyone run further. That's really So funny. I think it's very much that, you know, a bunch of guys are sitting around, ah, we don't want to go over there. Just hit it towards us. Just hit it towards us. Right. A very sort of Jewish rec sports way of playing the game. My producer is signaling to me a great point we discussed before the show. Um, somebody we haven't yet talked about, uh, I believe I mentioned him very briefly during the Cricket World Cup last year. But the all-time leading scorer in the Australian Professional Cricket League, a man named Michael Klinger, okay. is Jewish. Oh, that's great. Uh, he's a living legend in Australia uh, and a proud Jewish cricketer, um, of which there's a handful. There's one who played for India for a while, but Michael Klinger is really the, the all-time greatest Jewish cricketer. You're Mark Spitz or your Sandy Koufax of cricket. I see. Well, he just retired? The Koufax of cricket's a great name. That is he a great just, name. He retired last year. Last year was his last season. The Australian League is going on right now. Um, but it is, it is, I believe, doesn't have very many Jews in it. Okay. Uh, Nate, Nate uh, just connecting back to our previous podcast uh, about Jewish sports movies, Nate uh, mentioned... Uh, Wonders Oblivion, which is a movie that we weren't aware of, which I, I've never seen. I'm sure you haven't either. But a British uh, is that where all movie. of the uh, viewers of the movie are? Uh-huh, yeah, a 2003 British movie about a Jewish family in the 60s who connect with their, I think, West Indian neighbors over cricket, and uh, you know have a share a sort of bond over that. Um, while we're on the topic, uh, Oscar nominations came out today, and. A movie that we didn't talk about because neither of us had seen it, but Uncut Gems <laughs> should absolutely be on the list of any Jewish sports movie. Did not get any recognition from the from the Academy. Uh, Adam Sandler's brilliant performance, the Softies, uh, Softie brothers' brilliant directing. No recognition, and it's a real Shonda because that movie was great, and it was like by far the most Jewish movie I've, all, I've ever seen. I'm all for Hollywood Shondas. Yeah. Do you think now that Hollywood has been allegedly run by Jews. We can sure. show the snub of this allegedly. movie as proof that it is not. I mean, I think the Academy selection criteria is not necessarily the same as who's financing or, or you know, making decisions. Who do you think's in the Academy? I guess. I mean, there were, you know, Jojo Rabbit's a pretty Jewish movie that was on the uh, CJN's list of the best Jewish movies of the last 20-odd years. That's right. And uh, Scarlett Johansson, a famous Jewish actress, was nominated for two Oscars, despite, you know, 
relatively limited acting skills. This so. is true. Good so for her. Shout out to our producer, Alex Rose, and our guest, often executive producer, Michael Freeman, for contributing to that story. Yeah. Uh, so let's go now to our interview with Nathan Abrams. We're interviewing now Nathan Abrams. Uh, hi there, Nathan. How's it going? Uh, hi, I'm, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Great. Uh, Nathan, would you uh, tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Um, yes, I'm a professor in film studies at Bangor University in North Wales. Um, I'm originally from North London. I've been living here for 13 and a half years, and um, my interests are um, exploring the representation of Jews, Jewishness, and Judaism uh, in the movies and on television and other media. Um, you can check out one of my books, The New Jew in Film. It came out in 2012. Um, and as part of that, I'm interested in Jews and sports, as well as being a keen soccer player myself. Uh, I know that one of the things you wanted to talk about uh, was was cricket, which is you know, probably the, the quintessentially English sport, I think, right? Yeah, that's right. So is there a, uh, is there a Jewish side to it, despite its, its fierce... Uh, you know, old, old upper class Englishness? Um, well, it's funny you should say that. Yes and no. Um, Daniel Boyarin, who's um, a kind of noted Jewish studies scholar, wrote an article called Jewish Cricket. And I think the reason he called it that was because it's the, the title to most people is an oxymoron, you know, the idea of Jewish right. cricket. And uh, the reason for that being is probably, like you say, the most quintessentially English sport like if England, when England imagines itself at play, it imagines itself on the cricket pitch. Uh, when I say England, I mean the actual geographical bit that is England. Right. Uh, uh, not the whole UK. And um, But it was also the sport that really drove empire. Um, so when, when um, and here I will say the British, when the British went abroad and colonized, including in North America, including in Canada and, and the United States, um, they took cricket with them. Right. And uh, that was one of the ways that they um, kind of, um, um, they took the sport with them, but also converted the locals to them. But depending on where they went in the world is, is who ended up playing what. So what's interesting is the British took, you know, three key sports, rugby, football, soccer, and, and cricket. And you can tell which part of the constituent nations of the, which one of the constituent nations of the UK went where, depending on who ended up playing what. Oh, that's interesting. So, you know, in the West Indies, they're, they're more cricket players. So that's more an English thing. Um, North America did have cricket, but rejected it in favor of baseball. Right. You know, Australia, New Zealand's more cricket and rugby. Mm hmm. And uh, um, um, India, Pakistan, cricket, uh, and uh, um, the rest of the world was was football, um, but mainly because um, that wasn't associated with the British. It, 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 football spread so quickly that when other immigrants took it places, people didn't thought of those immigrants, not not the original British colonizers, if that makes sense. I see. So Argentina, people thought of it as Italian, not as British. Right. Even though uh, I guess football is, uh, or you know, association football started in in England originally and sort of spread from there. But it spread so rapidly because you know all you need is a ball, um, and not even a ball, um, that other people picked it up and then they took it with them and then and it became associated with them. So um, one of the reasons why 
um, cricket was kind of idealised as the quintessential English sport is, is I would argue, is it takes place in the kind of rural heartlands of the south. Sure. You need a lot of space to play it, certainly. Yeah. I mean, so what you've got to think is England's trying to preserve a sense of itself as like a green isle, green sceptered isle, um, um, unpolluted by corrupting foreign and other influences, right? I mean, um, so, and you don't want to, have to think about urban sports, football's an urban sport, um, because that, you know, you think of dark satanic mills and um, immigrants go to cities, right? So when you want to imagine a kind of pure English idyll, you take it out into the countryside, that into the village that's uncorrupted by these foreign influences and these and these forces of industrialization right and then and and the cricket pitch becomes idealized as part of a triangle of the village pub the parish church and then the cricket pitch all probably situated in close proximity so that's the kind of english imagination and you have these cricketers playing in this rural idyll playing with organic materials mm-hmm. you know talk about the thwack of willow on um cork on willow and um all dressed up in white and right. uh, breaks to have some tea and toast to the queen exactly <laughs> what i love about cricket is you break for tea right it's interesting that cricket has really taken off so much in uh different parts of the world now i mean india and pakistan obviously have the have the biggest league you know i think the the Indian Premier League is like the most watched sports league in the world now. And obviously in the West Indies, uh, you know, in most of the West Indies, West Indies cricket is the number one sport or, or along with soccer is the number one sport. Um, that it's sort of, you know, people who aren't traditionally British or English, certainly not white people who are uh, taking on the mantle of the game in the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, well, they got it when the when the British went abroad. So um, this is not a new adoption. You know, the British took cricket where they went with them. Um, but it's interesting is what you see is then a, an appropriation of that sport. Right. So, so is there a Jewish connection then with, with cricket um, as it sort of spread? I mean, did Jews take part in that or res- were responsible? I know that, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think people in Israel playing a lot of cricket. Uh, they, there's more football players, if anything, soccer players. No, well, precisely. It's an interesting thing there. So, yeah, I mean, in that spread of uh, colonization, inevitably there will be some Jews who probably did take part in cricket matches um you know if they were say in new york or or wherever jewish communities were once they became colonized by the by the british um and uh, but we don't have like you know so many records of that we know in like jews in india and 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 baghdadi jews in places like that uh, have played it um but we, we don't typically associate I mean, all right, we know the stereotypes. We don't associate Jews right. with any. One thing I did learn was um, I read a very interesting article called um, saying the only part of the British Empire where cricket wasn't played um, was in Mandate Palestine. Oh, interesting. And so obviously the British took cricket there and um, the uh, um, Jews in Palestine refused to play it as because it was a colonial sport. Right. Uh, you know, obviously, they didn't want the British there. And, um, um, but they play football, soccer, precisely for the reason I mentioned earlier, because other immigrants brought it with them. And so they didn't consider it British. 
You know, it's an it's an interesting question why uh, cricket didn't catch on in in Palestine or now in Israel. I mean, I think probably one reason, like you said, is is the sort of anti-colonialist from the from the time the British came in 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 whatever 1918 or at the end of World War One. Uh, there was a pretty anti-colonial streak among the the settlers there. But I feel like there's also probably something that's just you know there wasn't the space necessarily. There wasn't the you know the verdant flat green fields um that were being used for recreation not not for you know that weren't planted or uh or people trying to you know live off of yeah i mean i suppose you don't necessarily have verdant lush greens in a lot of other parts of the world where the british went they probably made do with what they had um right. and that's one of the beauties of cricket is you exploit i mean baseball can't do this because the ball stays in the air right um, <laughs> when you're throwing it right. but um, the beauties of cricket is you exploit that pitch um, as it's cracking under the sun or the rain, and as people are running back and forth on that on that um, crease, um, and so um, I mean that's part of the genius of the sport. The chess-like nature of it is that, that which I think why it might it should appeal to Jews. We can get to that. Is um, you exploit the the pitch, the actual, you know, if it's breaking up under a hot Palestinian, you know, mandate Palestinian sun, well we can use that, and you, you bring on bowlers. Who, who can do that you know right um but i think i mean you know there, there definitely probably could be more research into this there might be stuff in hebrew uh, um I, i'm not aware of too much in english but the one i have heard read is said it was kind of an ideological decision by the jews to to reject you know the, the british colonial overlords in a way that playing soccer wasn't an embracing embracing of british values um but having said that dovka you know once once Israel got independence, they all started playing it. <laughs> so once the British left, they didn't have a problem playing cricket in the slightest. I they just see. didn't do it when they were there. Um, and and you know Jews from India and, and and places like that brought it with them, and they're quite enthusiastic. And there's an Israeli cricket team. There is an Israeli cricket team. Yeah, I guess it hasn't. Um, you know, it hasn't had the. Uh, there hasn't been the 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 coming home of. Uh, Jewish cricketers around the world to play in an Israeli team their way the way there has been for baseball. I don't think I've heard about that happening, but that would be interesting to to see what what Jews around the world who play cricket might might be able to qualify to put an Israeli team together. I I just saw you did um you did a podcast on Jewish sports movies to keep you warm this holiday season. I don't know if you included one called Wondrous Oblivion. No, I've never heard of it. All right, Tell so us about you it. should check it out and I've written about it. It's a lovely movie. It's about this um young boy growing up in 1960s young jewish boy in 1960s london trying to fit in and uh, he loves cricket but he's terrible at it and um they stick him right on the outfield okay uh, right at the edge you know and that codes is kind of like um um how not only is he bad at it but he's sort of not accepted by his peers and um they make him the scorer <laughs> oh, okay. uh, so they're reinforcing those stereotypes Anyway, um, a Jamaican family moves next door, more recent immigrants, and um, they help him to become a much better cricketer, which helps him to kind of be accepted into English life, but at the same time, not to accept his values, um, right. but to maintain his more Jewish values, which are more in line with the Jamaicans. A very interesting, um, nice film. I'd really recommend it. It's very unusual for a sports movie because you never find out, like he never plays in the final. I see. And so it's not about overcoming an obstacle to win, which most sport movies are, basically. Right. 
That, that sounds really interesting. It, it seems there's a common theme in a lot of uh, movies about Jews and sports, the ones we talked about where it is sort of, it is an entree for a Jew to become accepted. Like School Ties is one we talked about. There's an American movie where, uh, you know, a Jewish, a, Jewish, a Jewish football player, you know, sort of gets into the prep school because of playing football. Um, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned Dark Satanic Mills. One of the other ones we talked about was Chariots of Fire, uh, which has a similar theme of, of you know, Jewish acceptance. And uh, as we talked about during the podcast, that uh, you know, despite its name, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the the song and poem might be the most white English English poem and song that's ever been written, despite the name and, and some of the, you know. But the themes are, are very uh, very very Christian. It's funny that that part of it, Chariots of Fire, became part of a became the title of a movie about a Jewish Jewish runner. Well, if you if you read, I've I've written about Chariots of Fire. I I, I explore the Jewishness of it. Um, um, and and the ironies of them, things like the the the, the hymn Jerusalem, right? And uh, you know, uh, let's build a Jerusalem here, but they don't want someone who might have actually been a Jerusalemite, right? You know, in the, in that team, you know, with all the anti-Semitism of the Cambridge Dons. Uh, one of the things I argue is that these elite sports um, allow Jews to figuratively whiten themselves. If you think of that kind of discussion about how jews became white in 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 western countries sure. you know they, they arrived as non-white you know racially non-white um but over the course of the 20th century um in in, in the united states there was a project to whiten jews by jews themselves to argue that their values were quintessentially american and by defining themselves against african americans in britain a similar thing didn't happen. It's just when you had large-scale immigration from places like the Caribbean and and, and uh, uh, Asia, um, Southeast Asia, uh, not Southeast Asia, so so the subcontinent in Asia, Jews just looked white in comparison to the new immigrants. But one of the ways to do it is to whiten yourself by wearing this full kit, right? Right. Um, and later on to wear a mask, you know, a helmet and everything. Sure. And um, one of the things I quip is that there's a very famous picture of W.G. Grace, a um, very famous Victorian cricketer, with a big full beard. I mean, he looks like a, a chassid playing cricket, right? He's not Jewish. Right. Um, and uh, um, someone wrote um, to, to Sigmund Freud and said, I can imagine you like this, you know, with your beard. So um, one of the things I argue is that these white, these sports, these elite sports, I mean, cricket, athletics tennis allowed Jews to figuratively whiten i think tennis would be as a media one a kind of jewish sport you know right. you think the movies of woody allen noah i don't know you said baumbach i just watched marriage story tennis yeah. is in there and it's in the squid and the whale and i i think there yeah and you know we've talked about this a little bit in our podcast before in north america that there was a sort of move certainly post-war for jews to you know, start their own country clubs to learn how to play golf and tennis and things like that. And I agree. I mean, I, th I think these sports are very traditionally, you know, traditionally white and traditionally upper class that have the sort of marker of having made it in society, having uh, having accomplished something. And that, you know, that's that's been the move for Jews away from, you know, boxing and things like that, where we're, we're not we're not producing a lot of boxers these days compared to 100 or 200 years ago. But uh, we're managing to pr to produce the odd swimmer and golfer and tennis player these days uh the the sort of high you know up more upper class white sports and i'm sure the same is true in 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 britain as well 
Anyways, um, Nathan, I think we're going to have to wrap it, wrap it up there, but uh, we want to thank you again so much for joining us, and uh, we'll make sure to uh, put links to, to your book and, and other articles as well on our show page and on Twitter, and uh, may, hopefully we'll, we'll talk again soon. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Take care. Uh, well, thanks again, Nathan, uh, for joining us. You can see links to Nate's books on our Twitter page and uh, maybe on the show page as well. Uh, speaking of Nate's, there's another Nate we want to talk about. One story we missed earlier. A few weeks ago, some of you might have known with our uh, interview with proud convertee and adopted Montrealer by way of L.A., uh, Nate Thompson, who did a very brave thing this week. He came out and sat down with Sportsnet's Christine Simpson alongside his wife, Sydney, uh, to discuss his history of drug and alcohol abuse and addiction and uh, his overcoming and uh, of such. And uh, he credits a lot of his second chance of in life and hockey to his conversion to Judaism. Yeah, really interesting uh, watch. Uh, I've retweeted it from the, from the Twitter page. You can find it there or at Sportsnet, I'm sure. Um, and, you know, just an interesting discussion about how he overcame this sort of alcoholism or how he continues to struggle with it and the role that Judaism has played in that. Yeah. Uh, I think it, it'll be an interesting listen uh, for anyone who missed it. Uh, we did a podcast with Nate, Nate Thompson uh, a few months ago and yeah. you can find it and all of our archives on the, on our show page and uh, wherever you get your podcast, wherever you're listening to this. Absolutely. Uh, and that said, uh, that should do it pretty much for this episode here. Uh, yeah, we should talk about our, our quick show notes. Our next episode is going to be a, a pretty exciting one. We are yeah. going on the road for the first time. We're bringing this show to the people, to uh, to the other Jewish place, yeah, Phoenix, Arizona, yeah, dry, dry, hot Florida. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Jamie and I will be traveling to the Waste Management Open, uh, the marquee spring event or marquee winter event, I would say, uh, on the. Uh, PGA Tours calendar. Uh, Don't tell the PGA, but we have no idea how they accredited <laughs> us, Accre- credentialed us for, to, to actually cover something as media. I yeah, mean, well, we are media, but the the man in charge is named Woody. Sure. Uh, of the of the press group, and thank I don't know you, if there's Woody. ever been a Jew named Woody. I don't think so. Yeah. Or what the you know the head of the PGA rules is named Slugger. Yeah. His name's Slugger White, which yeah. might be the whitest name I've ever heard in my life, the least yeah. Jewish name I've ever heard. But I think any of the any of the like Woody Chip Trey, those are really in the Gentile nickname Woody. categories. You know, well, we're more in the Mo Duddy <laughs> thing. You know, yes sir. Yeah, sigh. Sai, oh, Sai's good. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, we'll be there covering uh, the waste management movement from a Jewish angle. One of the title sponsors is a hedge fund named Kadima. Nice. Which I can only assume is run by Israelis. Yeah, it's definitely run by your uh, former Camp, D- Camp Kadima. Exactly. So we're uh, going to go forth to the promised land of Arizona. So, so listen up. I mean, we're going to have interviews, hopefully, with a number of Jewish golfers. Uh, there are several yes. competing in the event. Uh, we'll have more details about that. Uh, in uh, next week's episodes, the show notes ahead of time. And maybe watch our Twitter page uh, for shots from the event. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's going to be a real, real exciting one for us. And uh, we hope you guys will listen to it. And uh, thanks for listening today. Uh, you can find us, as always, on Facebook at the uh, CJN Podcast Network. Yep, We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Pod pod and so on and so forth yeah uh, wherever you're getting this one just subscribe like uh feel free to comment always happy to get people's feedbacks uh thanks as always to the canadian jewish news Absolutely. for publishing us we're on twitter at menschwarmers uh thanks to our producer alex rose and our supervising producer michael Freeman. so it's we we were on a five-star review for a long time perfect five yeah. on itunes someone, and someone, somebody gave us a four that's good you know what it feels more genuine it's good <laughs> 
I want to know how we lost that one star. All right, we'll what do we do? We'll, we'll track them down. I'll, I'll do the same uh, deep research I did on the Wayne Gretzky. Oh, the Wayne Gretzky and, thing. And we'll I, find some you, uh, our listeners don't know this, but Jamie presented his Wayne Gretzky case on a large Bristol board with push pins <laughs> and red string going from Tim Hortons to a map of Southern Ontario. Yeah, the, the staples near my office is all sold out of red string. I've just been buying it all up for my <laughs> my, my uh, ad debunking conspiracy so the theories. The picture of Walter Gretzky right in the center of the whole thing. All right. Thanks for listening to us, Menches. We'll, we'll be back in your, in your box a few a few weeks from now. Uh, and once again, if Larry Tannenbaum is listening to the show, we would love to have you on to discuss any yeah. of the topics, including yeah. why did you not draft Quinn Hughes? Yeah, we want to know about your childhood idols and whether or not you got any of their uh, autographs on a scrap of paper that you've been keeping for 50 years, Larry. That's right. Maybe uh, Mordecai Richler was one of them. Maybe. <laughs> or Getty Lee. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.